in which he talked about um, the person I don't know but has written a new book that uh, he'd like me to read and offer a response to. It sounds very good. But in the and in the uh, uh, summary that he wrote about it, he used a line that I just now heard myself saying because it was so meaningful to me. He was talking about one of the values of um, benefits of mindfulness practice, of which there are so many immediately that we could all think about, our own clarity of mind, our own uh, making of good decisions. But there was a line about it mitigates through wisdom the um, pain that we feel in response to recognizing suffering. That, um, And then he went on to say that there's several parts to really responding to knowing about suffering. And one of them was recognizing here is pain happening. And I feel the pain in me. But also at the same time recognizing uh, on some level this is part of life. You know, sometimes there's extra pain, the pain that is in the world uh, because of tyranny and people needing to be in exile and fleeing and the pain of uh, earthquakes and, and things that are not things that are immediately caused by human beings as well as things caused by human beings. But that all of it pains the heart when we, when we hear about it. And he was making the point, maybe, no, I think I did it as well, that in order to respond really with a whole heart, um, you need somehow to have the wisdom under it that these are the kinds of things that happen in a world. There are earthquakes, even, even the exiles which you say, well, people are doing this, is because it's a world where people haven't figured out how to deal with greed, hatred, and delusion. We're not evolved enough as a species. You know, there's a way of thinking no fault, just suffering. You know, one of the things that I'm learning more and more, I, I think, I was going to talk about it when we, well, why don't we turn on the... Oh. <laughs> All right, then I might as well get my notes out about it. But I was going to talk about, um, first of all, I want to say before I talk about anything, I'm so glad to be back, you know. I, I had a, thank you very much for asking. I did uh, have a holiday for a couple of weeks and went to Europe, and um, I was glad I did, and I'll tell you some things about it. Um, but I'm always glad to come back and sit, you know, that uh, with a group. I sit when I'm away, but you sit with a group, it's different, and particularly a familiar group, you know, that uh, I even notice, you probably do too, when we share concerns and we speak them out into the air, there are voices that I recognize. Are there voices that you recognize? Because I, I, you know, I know a, a, a number of you for a long time. I was thinking it's not talking. It's not really doing it. That's probably better. Well, if they, okay, if they click with that, I'll take that off. And I noticed that, uh, that uh, 
it's just such a, uh, it's a, it's a sustaining realization for me to realize that sometimes if, um, if I hear Marty's voice say an intention for somebody, I think to myself, oh, Marty's here. I didn't see her come in. That's good, you know, because I recognize her voice. And I'm, you know, touched by her sharing. And then I hear another voice that I don't know whose it is. But I, f I find, and I'm, I'm really always so, um, what's the word, sustained or buoyed up by it, that I, recognize, I don't recognize a voice, but somebody says about some travail that's happening in their life. And the response of the, of the heart, somebody said this morning, and my heart goes out to. And I thought, what a good, ex what a good expression. Because your heart does go out to, doesn't it? When, you, when somebody says something that's happening to somebody, not every single share is the same, but then you hear something, you think, oh, oh. And I feel so, the reason I feel sustained about it, so it's not, uh, is I think human beings are made of that stuff. I think that fundamentally, we're a compassionate species. That fundamentally, if somebody sat down the whole world and said, let me explain it to you, this is what's going on in the world. Don't be bewildered by news broadcasts or media or anything else that's bewildering you. Really, people are in trouble all over the place. And everybody's the same as you. Everybody wants to go home. Everybody wants to have dinner with their family. Everybody wants to go to sleep without worrying about getting up in the morning. And, and we could live differently. We could share. That I think most people would do that. We wouldn't be enemies to each other. Don't you think? I mean, I really have such a feeling that human beings do not have to take compassion lessons. There's a, a, a the cover of this uh, latest Shambhala Sun. It says, How to Make Friends with Yourself. And it's a good article, and it's written by John Tarrant, who's a friend of mine, and he's a really good writer. So it's, it's nice to read. But I think to myself, why shouldn't we... Why should we be in a position of having to make friends with ourselves? That's such a weird thing. We should be our best friend, you know. That, uh, and I think really, when we're when we have the good fortune to be raised by people who take very good care of us and love us a lot, that we're predisposed to do that. Anyway, that wasn't what I meant to talk about. But maybe everything is the same thing anyway. Oh, Amara, go ahead and say it. It's, it'll be on this tape, but that's yeah, fine. It doesn't matter. It'll be on the tape. Hear. Everybody should hear. I want to be sure everybody knows it. Except if they're in another continent, it's not so relevant to them. There's a great event happening um, on Saturday, November 14th, in Marin at the Civic Center Showcase Theater. It's called Wise Women, Illuminating Talk and Enlightening Theater. And it includes three amazing, incredible women. One is Nina Wise, who is a spirit rock teacher and an incredible um, improviser and artist. One is um, Anna Halpern, who just turned 95 and is an incredible legend in Marin as a dancer and te teacher. And one is our very own Sylvia Borstein. Ta-da! <laughs> it's a really cute picture. Um, so it's Saturday night. <laughs> It's Saturday night, November 14th. I don't have enough of these for everybody. If you're here with somebody else, please share. If you aren't going to be in Moran or available, please don't take one. But I'm going to pass them around. I'll bring more. Um, and um, it's a great deal. It's at the Showcase Theater. They are reserved seats, so the sooner you get your ticket, the 
better seats you'll have. And it only holds around 300 people. So it's a wonderful, intimate venue. And I'm very pleased about it. I have no idea what we'll do. Nina, Nina, Nina called me and said, you know, will you do this? And I said, sure. I said, what are we going to do? She said, I'll tell you. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know. But I have tremendous respect for Nina and for um, Anna. So why would I not be there with them? Sure. So I was thinking about, uh, how did I want to start this? Oh, okay, this is good. <laughs> Maybe it's good. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I, I thought about um, it, and I was putting together some ideas over the last several days for what I wanted to talk about. And I thought, well, it's the morning after the debates. Maybe we'll have a thing to say about the debates. But, the, you know, the only thing I want to say about the debate, and, I, you know, it's coming into this whole electoral season, and everybody knows my politics here more or less, but more, more not less. But anyway. <laughs> Leaving aside the politics, uh, the only thing I want to say about it is uh, this morning I turned on the TV briefly just before I left to come here, and I see you know how it has a banner headline to uh, announce the news so that you'll be excited about it, some stimulating head. <laughs> uh, my daughter, who is in uh, radio, has been, had a whole career in radio all her life says everything is a news flash the most anyway so here's this news flash on across the television it says democrats clash in first debate i thought really they did you know did you see that first debate look quite civilized to me nice shaking hands a little bit nice refreshing so and i thought to myself that it that, that stay tuned for the next dramatic thing that we're going to tell you is a way to keep you tuned to the television and watching the ads. I didn't see any clashing last night. But then the interesting thing is that it works when they say that sort of stuff. Stay tuned for the clash. Suppose it said, really mild-mannered grown-up debate happened last night. You might actually go out and do something else and not watch the news. And the thing that's, that's interesting, the, the, the way that collates over into thinking about how minds work, is um, there's something about that sort of, you know, guess what happened, or you can't believe what happened, that wakes up the mind and says, oh, I'll do that. Um, I'll just look at that. Oh, I'll just listen to that. And if it says, you know, this is really mild-mannered and you'll retain your equanimity from it, ah, not that interesting. Uh, I have, for various reasons, you all know I have a Gmail account because everybody knows that people write to me by my Gmail account when they want to tell me some great Dharma story or something. You can too, sylviaborstein at gmail.com. And I actually, all my, so nobody thought of that. Nobody could figure it out until I told them, which was really funny to me. It's not that hidden. But I have an AOL account from years ago when AOL just started and I just started. And uh, I never closed it because all my stuff from catalogs and whatever comes in that account and I check it from time to time. But anybody has AOL? Because they have those news boxes that come up. And they're all so seductive. Read here to see the last scandalous thing that so-and-so, so-and-so, some famous thing. You need ad blocker and then it doesn't come in? You can ad block that out? Ah, who knew? Okay. 
because, because the truth is I mostly never click on them because they're nothing. They're just things to arouse you into one or another passion. So really what I wanted to start with is I came back from my two weeks away last Friday and on Sunday I went to the opera and I went and I heard Lucia de Lammermoor and it was amazing. It was amazing. Who else is amazing? Fantastic. But in the middle of the first act, I said, I'm reaching over and I'm reaching into my husband's shirt pocket because he always has a pen tucked in there. And I'm writing in my program in the dark the dialogue that's going on because, you know, they're singing in Italian, but the dialogue is up here. And the count, the father of Lucia, who's been counting on her marrying somebody who he's set up for her because it's going to secure his finances forever. It's always the same story. <laughs> and not let her marry the person that she loves, who loves her also, and they could have a happy life, but it's from his feud family that he's mad at. He uh, hears the news that uh, Lucia doesn't want to do that. And he gets mad, and he sings out in this great, wonderful voice. He sings out, a dark passion is arising in me. Then he sings out, I'm in a rage. Then he sings out, let no one speak of anything but vengeance. And I think, wait a minute. <laughs> the first line of that is a mindful awareness. A dark passion has arisen in my mind. At that point, a dark passion arises in your mind. You think to yourself, the mindful person, who knows this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. That's the opening of the Metta Sutta. One who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. A dark passion arises in your mind and you, and you know it. You say, wait a minute, a dark passion has arisen in my mind. What should I do now that can soothe out? Let me relax, let me think it over. What would be another way to do it? And he goes straight on, I'm in a rage. That's what happens after the dark passion arises and you don't address it, then you're in a rage. You're in a rage, you don't see straight. And then you have only one, let no one speak of me of, of anything but vengeance. And I thought, this guy is gonna have a bad end and everybody is gonna have a bad end here. And they do all have bad ends, including the two young lovers. Everybody has a bad end. Matter of fact, I think no one is left standing. <laughs> Is that true? No one is left standing? The, but, but the two, the two lovers die. The lovers die. The, uh, I think... The husband is forced to marry. He dies. The father? But he's distraught. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are having a bad day. And uh, the... Uh, and it was very, very uh, graphically blood, uh, well, it looked bloody, it's all, it's not blood, but, but I thought, you know, that's what opera does. I, I, it just, it doesn't fool around with nuances, you know, it goes from zero to 60 in a half a second. And, uh, but that's just exactly, Amara said it earlier when I just came in, we were talking about it a little bit, and uh, uh, what did, you said something very good at that point. Well, what did you say that was so good? Oh, there was a fork in the road, yeah. 
That's right. And I was happy about that because I hadn't thought about it. Because a lot of times, in this last couple of years of teaching, I have been saying that of the Eightfold Path, who here doesn't know the Eightfold Path? No, I'm not getting a bad grade. So does anybody here want to give me an opportunity to review the Eightfold Path? Let's say it that way. There you go. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> that was a much better way to put it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and we should every time. I mean, we should do Buddhism 101. Once upon a time, a young man named Siddhartha Gautama was really appalled to see that in this life, uh, uh, particularly uh, uh, because he'd been protected from knowing it by living as a prince in a palace, in this life, inevitably, people age, they get sick. If they don't get sick, they die of age. If they do get sick, they die of sick. And that one way or another, if we love people in this life, we're going to have to get used to, we're going to have to deal with loss or they're going to have to deal with loss. The, he had an existential moment. It's a moment of existential anxiety, if you want to think about the, the mid-1900s existential psychologists talking about, that most people at some point realize, whoa, there is no way out. You lose something or other. Sometimes you lose a child, sometimes you lose a sibling, sometimes you lose a partner or a parent. And all of a sudden, somebody shared this morning about a one-year anniversary. Uh, several of my friends have had lost a child, and they said, you never don't remember. It's not in your mind every moment of every day. But it's never, it's never more than a mind moment away. There's everything that reminds you of the absence of that person. You know, even when a person is in this world and they live far away, you know where they are, you can phone them up. When they're not in this world anymore, there's a big hole in the world forever. And somehow or another, we all grow up and manage to live lives knowing that, that we're going to have to do that we're going to have to say goodbye to people who are they to us. And we don't think about that that all much in our lives because we'd probably be paralyzed from going out and doing anything or letting anybody out of our sight. Somewhere in between not thinking about it at all and then thinking about it so much so you don't let anybody out of your sight is some way that we figure out to move with zest and uh, verve and enthusiasm as if everything's going to be all right and everything is just going to be what it's going to be and sometimes not all right or just what it is anyway here's Siddhartha and he has his moment and he thinks there's got to be some way that human beings can have minds that don't suffer that kind of suffering Suffering in the Buddhist talk is not, is, not, is not actually like having a physical disease or starving or being too cold. or too, That's uncomfortable. But the, the specific suffering that the Buddha talked about is the suffering in the mind that's unable to say, this wasn't what it wanted, but it's what I got. This is what's happening. It's a specific, it's a specific tension in the mind the people who do hospice work know that 
people can uh, people can be in their last moments of their life and say this is lovely you know i love you all this is wonderful thank you very much i have no regrets so they're dying but they're not suffering and they're not happy about dying either they'd rather not be but we all do. So the Buddha's, to get to the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path in less than a whole two hours, here's, here goes the young Buddha-to-be out, and he says, I'm going to figure out how people have minds that stay calm in the midst of the fact that we will be bereft and bereaved, all of us. And so he goes out and he starts his meditation. He leaves his family. He goes on a long period, six years with this teacher, six years with that teacher. That might be wrong. It might be three and three, but there is some six involved there. With the best meditation teachers, and he learns to have tremendous control over his mind. He can sit in the hot sun. He can go without eating. But he says, I haven't still figured out how my mind can be at ease in a life. I haven't figured out the end of human suffering. And then he sits down, according to the legend, and he sits down under a certain tree, and he says, I'm not getting up till I know. And lo and behold, in the course of that night of sitting, he, he in the morning, says, this is it. It came to me, and I understand it. And what he understood is the gist of what he taught for the next 50 years or so of his life, traveling around as a wandering teacher in India. And the, the gist of what he taught, he told stories, mostly he told parables, the story of the this and the story of the that. And it's wonderful to read those old stories because um, if you go in the bookstore, there's a book called The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nanamoli. I wonder if it's out there. It's a, it's, I've had it for about 30 years. It, I don't know if it's out of print, but it's a really sweet book. He went here, he went there. It's not like a, it's not a difficult, it's not part of the canon. It's a story that, that excerpts part of the canon, so it's easier to read. And he went here and he went there and he taught this group and he taught that group and he said this and he said that. And the best part of those stories is that he went here and went there and big crowds came out and said, and he expounded the truth of what he understood. And then it says at the end of many of them, and when he was, and as he finished speaking, uh, uh, in the eyes of 80 or 100 or 200 uh, listeners, behind the eyes of... Um, in the eyes, behind the eyes of X many listeners, um, arose the understanding of uh, what he had said, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from doubts. I love that. And their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from doubts. They really understood the spotless, in the, into the minds of X many people arose the spotless, spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma, Dharma, and their hearts through not clinging were liberated from doubts. I love that. It's so inspiring. I kept, a, I have always, I still do, when I go to listen to my friends do a talk, a Dharma talk somewhere, I think to myself, even if I had heard the talk two or three times before, I think to myself, you know, there's a precedent for just listening to someone talk and having all of your habits 
fall away from one minute to the next. And you don't do that anymore, that habit of clinging, wishing it were other, the habit of expecting that it could be other, it can't be other. Everything that happens, happens because of such an unfathomable amount of karmic events that cause it to happen. What's happening is the only thing that can be happening. This is it. And if I really got it, if we really got it, we would live contentedly. It can't be other. This is what's happening. doesn't mean that we like it, but we don't have to fight with it. So I've liked those stories. But coming back to the who would like a review. This is going to be three minutes if I'm good at it. So he then, having had this vision of what, what would cultivate this mind, he then set out and began to teach. And the first group of people he taught were five people that he had known from his life as a, a recluse monk. And uh, he said, this is it. And he said, here are four truths that are true. They are the, the four noble truths. They are the cornerstone of all the forms of Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism varies, whether it's Chinese or uh, Korean or Japanese or Tibetan or even American or Western. Or, but what doesn't vary is the Four Noble Truths. He said, this is true. Life is dukkha. The word dukkha comes from a root words in the Pali language that, that have a resemblance to the axle of an ox cart. And you're meant to think of, it's often translated as life is suffering, but it doesn't actually mean every minute of life is suffering and doesn't explain what suffering is. The image of the ox cart and riding in an ox cart, somebody who, one of the teachers who I just recently read, I don't remember who it was, somebody I don't know in a Dharma book said, listen, when I was in Tibet, I once got to ride in an ox cart from one mountain village to another and said, believe me, that's a really bumpy ride on a, on a wooden axle in an ox cart with wooden wheels. And that life is a bumpy ride is a, good, is a good translation for what the Buddha was saying, that it, it doesn't get smooth. You know, you, fig, you fix one thing and then something else. Wait, what was her name on Saturday Night Live? Um, <coughs> Gilda Radner wrote her book called There's Always Something. There's always something. We're going along, everything's all right, and then something happens and you have to attend to it. There's always something. There's always something. That's the first noble truth. The second noble truth is that suffering, again, it's translated wrong. It, it, suffering is tanha, and the word tanha means craving. Uh, we don't use the word craving so much um, in daily life. It means insistence, really. Uh, and it means a specific insistence that things shouldn't be like what they are. It's like this. You know, when we find out that, um, again, it's a terrible image, but it's the most extreme images when you, you get a phone call that says someone has died. Someone was in an auto accident, or they were hit on their bicycle, or they went to the corner to meet a friend and they had a heart attack on the way. And you can't believe it. It doesn't go in your mind. You know? The mind feels, ah, it jams. It won't let that news go in. And it, it's, it's, uh, 
It's beyond what we can figure. That's the most extreme of it. Mostly, we hear something and we're distressed by it or dismayed by it or insulted by it, not hysterical about it. And what one hopes to be able to do is say, well, okay, uh, I'm really unhappy this is happening. Even a dark passion has arisen in my mind about this. But what can I do now? What can I do to take care of, first of all, the fact that being in a dark passion is very painful? And what, and what can I do now to mitigate my own pain and everybody else's? Doesn't mean, by the way, that we don't weep and wail and mourn, because we do that because I, I saw if I looked forward to the end of what I'd planned to say, the end of it, at lest anybody think this is about stiff upper lip, is about the Zen master whose child dies, who is sobbing away. And his students say to him, I thought you said to us that death was normal and that if we understood what life is, everybody's life ends, some sooner, some later. Uh, and here you are, you know, sobbing away. And he said, you know what? I said about this is true about life, it inevitably ends in death, is true. And I'm terribly sad. It doesn't preclude sadness. It doesn't preclude sadness. It doesn't preclude really, really wishing that things were other. The suffering part is insisting it has to be other. And in, even in the, in the sequence that goes along with mourning, either the loss of somebody or the loss of one's own health, when you discover that you have something that you're not going to get better from. First you get, don't believe it, then you get mad. By and by you say, this is, I guess this is what's happening. And you don't get happier about it. But you don't suffer as much in the mind. The mind that says this can't be happening changes to the mind that says this is happening. I wish it wasn't, but it is. So it's a very specific kind of suffering. It's the tension in the mind that requires things to be different from how they are. And then the third noble truth is that it's possible to have a peaceful mind in this life. And I really think about that now as a peaceful mind doesn't mean that every minute doesn't have tension in it. That it has tension in it because we're alive and we have feelings. Like the Zen master who sobs. And all of us who hear the news that there's an earthquake in Tibet or that so and so many people were drowned on their way trying to make it across the Mediterranean. Or any of the real, of the, I heard what percentage of American children are, uh, don't have enough to eat just in the last couple of days. That's incredible in this country that there are people that don't have enough to eat. And 90 people die every day of gunshot wounds in this country. And racism has not ended in this country. There are a lot of really sad things. And how to be able to say, I feel sad about this, I feel moved by this, I feel touched by it, but I'm not mad at it. Because that really jams the mind and you can't think. Say, this is what's happening, it's what's going on, what can I do now? And Amara is saying about fork in the road, 
The third noble truth is our minds could be peaceful. That means not that they rest tranquil. It means that they are by peaceful and can return to peaceful after they've been startled or worried or frightened or whatever. And they return to peaceful with whatever tools out of the Eightfold Path people can use to return it to peaceful. And the tool that says, uh, the, of those eight, the one I'll start with, because I actually think it's the first one, is wise effort. Wise effort, even when I started to practice, people who used to teach the Eightfold Path, they'd say wise effort is like making enough effort to try very hard. And it's not at all about trying very hard. It, I mean, it's like trying very hard, but it's about trying very hard, moment to moment, choice by choice, to choose the path that leads to less suffering. And that every one of those challenges is a side post. You know, if you're riding down the street, uh, riding down a road on your bicycle, and you come to a fork in the road, and you look at the arrows, and it says, suffering, not suffering. And then you think, well, which way do I want to turn here? You know, This is a cliff, and this is a smooth ride. You know, Where am I going to go here? Be and to make that decision, uh, like in the, in the lines from the opera, uh, you, if you put that in there, the, here he says, sings out, a dark passion has arisen in me. That's a fork in the road. Then you see, okay, this side is calm down, take a breath, think it over. What are the um, other possibilities that you could use that won't complicate the situation that might work right now? And this other way is I'll remember how mad I am about this and not more how they've defied me in the past, and how, listen, I'm the king, they can't do this to me, da 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 da, da. And that doesn't end up well. And that the, the defining moment is when the, the stability in the mind has been challenged. Uh-oh, dark passion. Do I want to do this, or do I want to do that? And what wise effort is, is not even doing it, but being motivated to do it. Say, okay, I want to go this other way. Then you have to do something to go this other way. You can't just decide. You know, that, uh, what do you do, as a matter of fact, when... Let's do, let's do that for a minute. I'm talking too much. Suppose... Can, I, can we make this into a, a, a... Can you think of a situation... Think for a minute. Ordinary, not, not such a, you know... Uh, what would I think? Uh, okay, this is completely ordinary. I come to the airport two weeks ago, and the flight I'm on, after I get on, has some problem uh, backing out of the backing out of the runway. So we're all ready to go, but. Uh, there's some problem in the stuff in the next runway. Anyway, we were delayed 40 minutes, and so we're sitting on the runway. It's okay, and they get this long flight coming after you. So already your mind is starting to think about uh, ten and a half hours. Now I'm sitting an hour, and I didn't take off yet. You could be thinking that, and you do think it. And then you say to yourself, "Well, let's see." I, I love this. I, I learned this last year. Those of you who know me well will know that I practically bring it up every week. Gil Fransdahl says, something happens, you say to yourself, hmm, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. 
So that, let's see what happens next. It's like so brilliant. Like, let's not make a big fuss yet. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Somebody wrote me and said, he said, the question that I ask myself when I hear something worrisome is, do I know enough yet to get freaked out? <laughs> Which is a very vernacular way to say that, but do I know enough yet? So let's see what happens next. So they take off. And also, I had a connecting flight on the other end. And, so, and I had a reservation in the city that I was connecting to for that night. And I was already arriving there late enough. Say, let's, have, let's see what happens next. And we take off, and they fly a little fast, and they come on time. So you don't know yet. That's benign. You tell me a story. OK, there you go. Tell everybody else, though, so loud. Mine has to do with traveling, too. So I was traveling to Europe recently, and the first leg of the journey was from San Francisco to New York. And then we were going to get on a plane from New York to Italy. So we get to San Francisco, and we're in the line, the security line for the plane to Italy, and we realize we don't have our passports. Everybody, ah, friend. If this were a radio program, it would now go down, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> So, you know, then the, the, the question is, how do, you, how do you deal with that? And um, so I do think that having meditated for over 15 years now, I was able to be pretty calm about it. And, and not initially. I mean, for the first five minutes, you're a wreck. But after that, you know, you just say, okay, now what do we do? And you, you get the courier who, you know, picks it up at your neighbor. Your neighbor gets the passport from your house and the courier brings it and you pick it up the next day at Delta Air Cargo. Who knew that existed? And 24 hours later, you know, you're on another plane um, for Europe. And in the meantime, we figured, well, we're in New York. Let's enjoy it and went out that evening and just, you know, made the best of it. And so I think that situations like that, that don't involve anyone's health, that's where the practice really helps, is to be able to handle something like that and say, hey, it's, it's okay, Nobody, nobody's hurt here. That's a terrific story. Thank you very much for it. Yeah. I also very much like the part of the story that you didn't tell is, well, the part that you did tell is then you went out and had a nice evening, whatever. And from what you're telling, did not complicate it with any stories about what an idiot I am, leaving the passport home, I shouldn't have done it differently. All those things that, uh, well, that I just realized I said the word should, that I try very much not to say. All the things that I say, I should have this and I should have that, are extra pain because I didn't do them. So that... <laughs> No, but that's exactly right. Anybody could do it. Anybody could do it. And the, the whole thing is, is this worth getting freaked out about? You know, do I have enough information or whatever? It's happening. What can I do from now on? It's already happening. Anybody else want to? Thank you so much. John, you want to tell a story? Yeah, Jai, actually. Um, so anxiety disorder runs in my family. And 
I had a few bad years before I got my brain chemistry straightened out, which I think was a big piece of it. But having meditated over many years, you talked early on about things just happening by themselves as a result of practice. So I, I find when a situation arises that I could worry about or ruminate over or get anxious about, what happens by itself is that I I see myself saying, okay, what needs to happen here? Mm -hmm. I just, my mind automatically generates, you know, what the next step is, what mm -hmm. the next step is. And that that feels like a real clear blessing, uh, a real clear result of, of mindfulness practice. Thank you very much for that. I think I think that's really what Gil was meaning when he, it's the ability to say, hmm, let's see what happens next. Not getting um, lured by old habits down old pathways of behaving. And I actually have been finding recently, I'll, 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 think, I'll tell you about it when I get it more thought through, that um, I've been thinking about uh, the idea of cumulative practice and when I started my own practice, there were all kinds of stories, uh, including the stories about the people who heard the Buddha speak, who suddenly were completely over all their habits. And so there were two schools of thought. There were the completely sudden enlightenment, never confused again stories. And there were another trend of stories called the gradual awakening. So I was always in the gradual awakening kind of a uh, path telling myself something's happening but something is happening because if I look back every time that I make a decision like that I say oh but who would I call the hotel there hotel there let's see what happens next and really crucial in it is saying I can't do anything about this this is beyond my control and uh, somehow to say we'll see what happens We'll see what happens. But it requires enough mindfulness to know that this just happened and there's a fork in the road and you can choose and you figure out what to do. So by the way, just so that I don't leave this hanging in the midair for you and for anybody who's gonna to listen to the tape afterwards, the eight ways to get the mind habituated to making a good choice are really getting it that there's such a thing as wise choice that leads to non-suffering, really understanding what this is all about. And going with that is the arousal of the intention to cultivate that, to cultivate a mind that doesn't go in the direction of being inflamed, stay tuned for this next inflammatory statement. No, as a matter of fact, we could stop right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We, we A couple of weeks ago, do you remember when it was, we were making a list of folksy things you could say to your mind, like, get a grip. <laughs> uh, it's not in a Dharma book, but it would be a good Dharma book to write called Get a Grip. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal, you know, get a grip, it's not that big of a deal. So the second is the intention to be able to get a grip. The third is the decision to live ethically and morally because it doesn't cause your mind to stir itself up and you know if you if you if you behave ethically it's good for you it's not because you're restraining yourself it's good for you then you don't have any remorse and you don't feel guilt and you don't feel bad about yourself so living ethically picking out a work a thing to do with your life a way to spend your time 
that is, it doesn't create suffering for yourself or other people. Uh, speaking in a way that doesn't cause suffering for yourself and other people. I used to, it took me a while to realize that speaking to myself in my inner dialogue was as important as it is. That I always got it about uh, speaking nicely to other people. We're not going to talk about presidential debates or whatever. But they did speak nicely to each other, friendly, respectful. One of the things I felt as a result of the evening as it passed is I was relaxed about it, which I am not in the past from listening to debates, because I didn't think anybody was going to pounce on anybody all of a sudden. Didn't you feel relaxed after a while? It's going to be all right. And I felt like that, that kind of civility was a gift to us, really, that you don't have to feel all tied in a knot. So wise speech, also speaking to yourself does not, not, not getting inflamed with I should have this or I should have that, I didn't, so I'll try next time. And then the three mind cultivation parts of learning to be mindful, which really means um, being alert moment to moment, being present fully in what's evolving. So that, really, so that the ability to notice a uh, challenge has arisen, but I could relax and plan, can happen quite spontaneously. That's what mindfulness is. It's not obsessive naming or even obsessive listing. It used to be, uh, I don't know if it's still there, uh, a message on the inside of the toilet stalls where it says, please be mindful about something or other, toilet paper use or paper towel use. And they really don't mean be mindful about it. You're not going to, I don't think. But, uh, they mean be careful or please save paper or whatever they want to say. But mindful means understanding the deep significance of how is this moment connected to the moment before in terms of what my mind states are. And then, unless maybe I get, I, I should take that back. Maybe it's important to be thinking about drying my hands and that we really are careful to recycle paper and the right paper towels and all. But it makes it too much of a, of, it's, it, it sounds too much like obsessive um, marking of things. and. The, the, the thing that I would like to be attentive to moment to moment is not how I'm drawing my hands so much as what is the, um, what's the climate of my mind in terms of um, skillful or unskillful mind states? How much is my mind filled with uh, thanksgiving and gratitude and generosity and goodwill and patience? and determination and hope and compassion. How much is it in, how much real estate am I seeding over to grumbling and envy or annoyance? That they are, and I, I, you know, I don't know enough about the, the biology of mind states, but I'm sure that they're more titillating to the mind, grumbling or, because when you feel peaceful, mind's pretty relaxed, you know, you don't get inspired to... But here's like, 
you could be mad at that. I could be mad at that, couldn't I? And I could think of the last time that that person did that same annoying thing and the time before that they did it, and I could remember it. And I don't deserve this. I deserve better. There's so many stories that we could tell ourselves. He should have remembered the passport. <laughs> that don't do us any good. Uh, but they're exciting to the mind. Maybe, I don't know, I have to think about that, that we're not habituated to peacefulness. I want to at least end with where I thought I'd begin, because I, I, in my thinking the last few days, before I went to Europe, I have two more things to say. Before I went to Europe, something happened, I don't remember what. I guess I was planning, I was packing, I need this, I need that. And we'd made plans, we didn't go all over the place, we went to Florence and we went to Venice, both places that I've been sometime in my life. But I wanted to go back, particularly because there were certain pieces of art in both cities and around both cities that I wanted to see. I took a course, a video course, uh, from um, some professor, one of those courses that you can buy online. And I really did take that whole course, and I studied all this stuff, and I read the booklet. And I really had to feel I'd like to see those artworks. And you can see them, many of them are in northern Italy, around Florence and Venice. So I made a plan, and my husband was agreeable to go, and we hadn't gone anyplace in a long time. So we went. I had this whole plan. And just before I was going, it came into my mind, uh, I don't know, apropos of what, that my first Buddhist teacher was Bill Kwong, who is the Roshi of the Sonoma Mountain Zen Center, still. And it was my first introduction to uh, Buddhism. And I took a course from him in Zazen at Sonoma State 40 years ago. More than that, actually, late 30s. Anyway, took a course from him. And I remember that I couldn't get in the course. I went to sign up for that course, and it was full. But I went to the first class anyway. They, they say, go, and here's a class card. See if he'll sign it. We'll let you in the class. So I go with the class card. Many people came with the class cards, but there wasn't enough room. And then you have to sit on a zafu facing the wall. So really, you can't fit in more people that they have zafus for or that they have walls for. But here were a lot of people, and he let them in, and he did the first lecture because they're already there. And then he said, I'm sorry you can't all be here, but we don't have room, clearly. Don't come back the next time. So the next time I came back, <laughs> because I really wanted to be in that class. I was really interested in Buddhism. I really wanted to study it. It would fit into my day. And so did a lot of other people come back also. So he was very gracious. He was and is very gracious. So I stay the whole class, and then at the end he says, "Okay, next time, if you don't, if you're not in the class, don't come back, um, because we really can't manage it." Da da da. Anyway, he said, "And keep in mind that being in the class is the same as not being in the class." So I think to myself, "That's ridiculous, you know." <laughs> Being in a class is not the same as not being in a class. If you're in the class, you get four units, and you get in the class, you hear Bill Kwong teach, and you get to hear about Zen, and you get to practice, and it gets on your transcript, and I'm going to graduate school. It's not the same. That's ridiculous. But anyway, I went to see Bill Kwong in his office, and I positioned, you know, I pleaded my case, and he signed my class card. So I got in. So I 
went every time faithfully, a couple of times a week, and sat, sat, sat. And maybe halfway through the class, I'm sitting facing the wall uh, on my zafu, which I could do in those days. And in the middle of the sitting there, it occurred to me, in a way that I cannot tell you, because it's not a rational thought. I thought, I thought to myself, you know, being in the class is the same as not being in the class. <laughs> and it's one of those things where I actually got it. You know, it's like a, a koan or something, you know. I can't tell you how, because all those things I said before about you get the units, you don't get the units, da, 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 it's probably, you don't get the units if you're not in the class and you don't get to be with Bill and all of that. But probably the best I could recreate for you is that with any experience, it's, it's as ephemeral as anything else. Once you're in the class, and so then it's over. So all right, so there's a number on your transcript sheet. But, uh, you know, if not that class, another class, who knows if I'd take another class, not that one, what my outcome would have been, something else would have happened, or I would have taken it later, you don't know. And in some profound way, being in the class is the same. <laughs> I can't tell you how you have to either get it or not. Being in the class is the same as not being in the class. So about two days before I'm going to Europe, and I'm really excited about it, I'm going to go see all these paintings that I really wanted to see in their own venue. And then I think to myself, going is the same as not going. Then I think, oh, wait a minute, this is bad because I'm going. <laughs> and I think, well, in two weeks I'll be home. And then I will have just seen them, and then it's like a, a, a bucket list I checked off. I have seen the Maestà in Siena, okay. And I have seen the Botticelli in the Uffizi. The truth is, it was great when I was there, and I was really happy to be there seeing it. But it's finished. Like last year's Giants winning the World Series, which they didn't do this year, you know? that Everything finished, 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 and it's in the same, neuronal memory bank coded in there like everything else. But I'm glad I'm I went, and I was actually worried that it's a profound realization, and I didn't want it to mess up my holiday. I didn't want to be so, you know, ach about it. Yeah, I'm here, but hey. <laughs> going is the same as not going. <laughs> I even thought about it while I was there. I thought, okay. I'm here, I'm looking at this piece of art. It's really fantastic. Now I'm walking out of here. The chances are very good that I'm not going to be here ever again in this lifetime. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't even matter that I went and saw it. I could have not seen it, but I saw it. And I thought, you know, you could really maybe lose your enthusiasm for, because in the minute you think I'm going to go and see it in the real, and so far, I am not losing my enthusiasm. You know, I, 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 I just wanted to say, that's in process with me. And what I really wanted to say, and that's why I told you that story, is I think that there are about five or six basic understandings that I, in the course of studying Dharma, that are part of my understanding that I think I get to understand better and better and better over the years. I don't have to, that's like when I came back from uh, Washington a couple of years ago and uh, I went with a friend to the, Kali, uh, to, for a week of the, uh, uh, of the Dalai Lama doing the Kali Chakra 
initiation, any lectures all day, every day. It was great. It was great. And I came back, and my friend Sally Clough, Sally Armstrong, said to me, how was the trip? I said, it was great. She said, did His Holiness say anything new? So I thought about it, and I said, no, His Holiness did not say anything new. He said the same thing he said when I saw him five years ago. I went to, I went to, I went to Los Angeles over the 4th of July because it was his 80th birthday, and there were all these celebrations. And he was lecturing at them. And the truth is, His Holiness did not say anything new. But you keep going to hear His Holiness say the same old. Because um, it actually isn't what His Holiness says. It's what you bring to that, really. And each time, I understand it a little bit more. So I thought, well, maybe I'll make a list. Maybe I, I'm going to be here for three weeks. Maybe I'll make a list of the top five or the top ten things, like being in the class is the same as not being in the class. I would. Let's put that as number one. Number two is the first line of the uh, third Zen patriarch, and I think since it's 11 o'clock, we'll start there next week. If you like, can I do this? Yeah. I'll, I'll make you a copy of it next week and the week after so we can actually work together with it. Would you like it as a text? Okay. The first line of the Third Zen Patriarch. You could print it out on your computer. I'll, I'll bring it for you. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. I think there's a, there's a difficulty with the translation. I think a proper translation of this would be, and I think it's legitimate to do this, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. Because that's the whole thing, is attached to the preferences. I would have rather it was this way, but it's that way. I would have rather I could get into the academia. <laughs> the academia as long as I was in Florence and that the line wasn't around the block a few times, but I couldn't because the line was around the block a few times. <laughs> but that's all right because going in is the same as not going in. <laughs> and I did go to the Uffizi Gallery where I did get in. <laughs> and I think I understand why that would be so liberating. It's a pleasure to be back. I wish you all a very good week. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.